This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome back. I'm Nikolai Zygoko, co-director of the Mac Institute and professor of management here at Wharton. And this is Mastering Innovation on SiriusXM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, uh, Carter Cleveland. Uh, Carter is the CEO and founder of Artsy, uh, which he started while he was still at Princeton in 2009. Now, Artsy has grown rather rapidly, uh, now offers access to more than 800,000 pieces of art from over 80,000 artists, estimated collected worth of around $30 billion. Carter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Nikolai. It's a pleasure to be on. So early on, uh, Artsy was described as the Pandora for art. Uh, can you please tell our listeners what Artsy is and what you do? Uh, absolutely. Well, that kind of goes back to our, our dorm room days. Maybe I'll, I'll answer, I'll talk about those in a separate question. Um, <laughs> but to talk about what Artsy is today, um, it's pretty simple. Right now, the art market is big. It's about $60 billion, but it's highly fragmented. Um, there's lots of, you know, thousands of galleries and auction houses and art fairs all around the world. What Artsy does is we aggregate, we, we partner with all these different uh, art institutions, art businesses, we aggregate their art into one place, make it easy to discover and buy it. Now, um, that's the galleries and auction houses. Uh, do you also have individual artists who put their stuff on your, or is that a different kind of line? So we have, yeah, so we have over 90,000 artists, um, but mm -hmm. they're all coming in through our various gallery partners or auction house partners. Uh, we also have art fairs. We also partner with art fairs and museums as well. And so all the art you see there is from artists that are represented by those institutions. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the marketplace aspect. Now, Pandora is not just a marketplace, right? There is sort of a certain amount of curation going on. So so what is why that allegory to, to Spotify or Pandora? Yeah, you know, and that, that a little bit goes back to our, our early founding days. So uh, I actually started Artsy in college, and I was someone that was, uh, very lucky to grow up uh, being exposed to a lot of art at a young age. Basically, my dad is an art writer. So from a young age, he was taking me to galleries. He was taking me to museums. He was talking to me about the art and explaining it to me and helping me understand it. And so, you know, my relationship growing up to art, uh, sorry, my relationship growing up with art was mm -hmm. very similar to how other people grow up with film or music. Mm -hmm. It's just something that's around. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's great, but it's also kind of not too big of a deal. And it was when I was older in college that I realized, you know, just what a lucky upbringing that was. And, of course, that's not the experience for mm -hmm. the vast majority of people. Most people see art as something that's kind of intimidating, kind of scary. It's hard to understand. Um, and as I was looking online for better resources to learn about and discover art, I realized that while we had, you know, sites like uh, Pandora or Spotify that aggregate all the music, and we had sites like Netflix that aggregate all the films, there was no single website that aggregated all the world's art into one place to make it easy to learn about, but also discover, you know, new artworks and new artists. A lot of my interest was actually in the discovery part because mm -hmm. I, uh, I was actually majoring in computer science and engineering, and I was particularly fascinated by uh, artificial intelligence. In fact, I was originally physics, and I switched out of physics um, into computer science literally because I read the course description for AI. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I was, I had been very closely following how Pandora had done music recommendations and how uh, Netflix had done it for film. And I realized that no one had actually systematically gone after the category of art 
in order to understand it and make intelligent recommendations around it. So that was actually a lot of what attracted me to it. It was almost a kind of academic interest in the algorithms around recommending art, hence the relationship to Pandora. You know, obviously, since then, we, we created the Art Genome Project, which mm-hmm. is modeled after Pandora's Music Genome Project. Um, we actually have a team of people that categorize all our artists and all our artworks um, based on what art historical movements uh, that are relevant to them, and that's the basis for our recommendations. Mm-hmm. How is that uh, classification evolving over time? So I know you started out by you know, creating scales and creating dimensions, and, and how has sort of that, that project evolved? Yeah, that's a great question. So as you might imagine, you start out with kind of the basics of art history. So basically, if someone is looking at, say, um, a work by Andy Warhol, um, if, you, if you are like an art advisor, you know you might want to also recommend a work by Tom Wesselman or maybe a Roy Lichtenstein, essentially, you know, other artists related to the pop art movement, mm-hmm. right? So what we did is we took those main categories, uh, major art historical movements like pop art or abstract expressionism or cubism or different contemporary movements, um, and we started categorizing artists, um, giving them scores, actually, both artists and individual artworks, giving them scores across all these different art historical movements. And then based on your similarity, it's actually using a genetic similarity algorithm, essentially how similar are these artworks or artists based on their genome you know what to recommend to people based on, you know, what they've already looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, um, one of the main things is as you get more and more art, you know, initially we had a handful of galleries. Now we have, you know, thousands of galleries and uh, hundreds of thousands of artworks. Um, you have to actually expand the art genome. So it's sort of like if you're an art historian, you know, you might start off in one department. Um, but as you move um, into different sort of geographic regions or into different, you know, just periods of time, you have to essentially understand or develop new art historical uh, movements in mm-hmm. order to understand and contextualize different regions, different periods. And so the genome is actually constantly expanding. Um, we've even had cases where we've actually noticed that three, we call them genes, essentially each movement or kind of category is a gene. Mm-hmm. We might notice, hey, these three genes are very similar. Let's actually combine them into a single gene, mm-hmm. right? Or we've also um, applied some uh, machine learning to try and better understand how um, – how you can actually predict certain genes from the visual quality of work. So, mm-hmm. for instance, you can imagine uh, a gene for bright colors or for colors in general. That's very easy to extract from the visual data of the artwork. Mm-hmm. You could imagine that a gene like geometric, which describes a very specific visual quality of a work, is another type of gene that can potentially be uh, categorized using artificial intelligence versus human. And so I think we're always, it's always something that we're trying to um, get better at and, uh, and, yeah, just expand our um, expand our knowledge in. Yeah, so that was actually my, my next question. So it sounded like you started out um, maybe a bit like Yahoo, right? Started out by having people classify things into categories, right? Um, and uh, then you used uh, maybe algorithms kind of to make, make predictions of, you know, if you like A, you may like B, and uh, B will find kind of within our tree of, of, of knowledge or our, our genome. Uh, how much have you now turned to AI itself to make the classification in the first place? Um, so we've expanded it in a, in a few ways. I would say that uh, most of the categorization we do, the vast majority of it, is still done by humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, there are cat- essentially the more visual uh, that a characteristic is, the more you can just, you know, you kind of know it when you, when you see it, mm-hmm. um, the easier it is for a machine. Um, the other thing we've done is we've looked into using collaborative filtering at the artist level. So collaborative filtering is the algorithm that Amazon uses to say, hey, other people who like this, yeah. uh, you know, also like this. 
Um, and collaborative filtering is kind of like, you know, best-in-class algorithm for e-commerce where you're selling skewed items, essentially mass-produced items. Um, the, the challenge uh, of applying that to unique artworks or to unique anything is that um, once people have bought that one other thing, it's gone. <laughs> yeah. And so if you send more people to it, you're just sending them to a sold and out of inventory. <laughs> right. Right. So with art, you have to be able to make recommendations for things that have not yet had user interest or user purchasing behavior on them, because once they buy it, it's gone. Yeah. So hence the need for genome similarity. However, you can apply uh, collaborative filtering at the artist level. So you can say, mm-hmm. hey, if you like Andy Warhol, we've actually noticed that people who like Andy Warhol also tend to like you know, Tom Wesselman or yeah. Roy Lichtenstein, etc. Mm-hmm. So those are other ways that we've, uh, we've expanded uh, how we do recommendations there. Very interesting. Let's come back to the business side. <laughs> um, so can you just give us like an overview a little bit of the art market? You already said right, global market is maybe more than $60 billion a year. And frankly, I have to admit, I know there are art galleries, there are auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's, but that's sort of basically all that I know. So can you tell us a little bit more of how is actually the art market kind of organized? Yeah, absolutely. So it's $60 billion, um, and that breaks down roughly 50% between auction houses and galleries. Um, and if you think of art fairs, art fairs are essentially giant conferences of art galleries. So mm-hmm. I'm including art fairs in the uh, in that figure. And then, of course, museums are not part of the art market. We partner with museums purely as part of our kind of educational, contextual component of the, of the arts experience. So $60 billion breaks down roughly 50% auction houses, 50% galleries. Um, and then within that, you have a primary market, which is artists that are selling art for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have a secondary market, which is artworks that are reselling. So anything that you see at an auction house, they basically specialize in the secondary market. So if they're selling like that massive Leonardo da Vinci, um, that's obviously a work that's sold many times in the yep. past and is now reselling us in the secondary market. Um, and we think those two markets basically uh, work harmoniously together because everything that's in the secondary market starts off sure. in the primary market. Um, in this market, though, there are major inefficiencies. So on average, if you are trying to sell a work in the art market, on average, you are going to give up 30 to 40% um, of the total price. So let's say a work sells for $100,000. That means uh, you took home only sixty to $70,000. On top of that, on average, it takes you about three to six months to sell the work, if ever. So it's kind of a miracle that that market even exists, you know, given how inefficient it is. And that's where we think an online model can be really helpful. Artsy does not focus on the high end of the market. We really focus, you know, we, we've sold multi-million dollar works, but we focus primarily in the sub-100K mm-hmm. part of the market. You know, in the multi-million dollar part of the market where the major auction houses have their, you know, the big evening yep. sales you hear about, um, <clears throat> there's maybe only hundreds or, or thousands at most buyers for works at right. that very high price point. And so... The kind of Rolodex-based sales method actually works very effectively. You know, it's almost like doing a corporate M&A. There's a small number of buyers and a small number of sellers, and they're well-known by the middlemen. Mm-hmm. But as you scale down into the sub-million-dollar uh, price range, you go from thousands of potential buyers to hundreds of thousands of potential buyers. And then, you know, in $10,000 or below, you're talking millions mm-hmm. of potential buyers. Yeah. And that's where Rolodex-based selling just becomes very inefficient. And right. there's really no reason that if you want to sell work in that part of the market that you should have to wait six months or pay, you know, 40%. And that's really where Artsy, by aggregate, you know, we've aggregated mm-hmm. more supply and more demand than, you know, any other company in the, in the art industry. And we basically match up buyers and sellers uh, more efficiently, and we bring down those transaction speeds mm-hmm. and those costs. Yeah. 
In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, I'm Nikolai Zikoko, and my guest is Carter Cleveland, the founder and CEO of the online art marketplace, Artsy. Um, now, you said earlier, kind of art can be intimidating. Um, buying art is maybe even more intimidating, <laughs> right? Uh, and I think part of what makes buying art intimidating is quite often there's not a price tag. Um, you go to an auction or there is, well, call us and we'll talk. <laughs> um, how much of those kind of, again, those seem to be like the three models, right? There is a price tag. Uh, you go to an auction or kind of, you know, call the gallery and we'll talk. Uh, how does the market split out? It's probably dependent on the price point we're also talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, our goal is to be, you know, our goal for this year is to be the best way to buy sub-100K art online. So we are focused on making the experience of buying as easy and transparent as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, let me give you a little bit of, of history of where that's at, because you're absolutely right. Typically in the art world, what keeps people out of the market uh, is that there often is not any pricing transparency, or it's not even clear how you're supposed to interact with the auction house. Mm -hmm. You know, or the dealer. Um, and by the way, we think that's why the opportunity to grow is so big. Uh, just to give you one stat, uh, we don't think you have to be a millionaire to buy art, but of the millionaires out there who, you know, have nice homes, nice cars, nice watches, only 2% of them currently buy art. Um, if you can get that number to go from 2% to 4%, you just double the number of buyers, yeah. um, you know, for art in the world. So it really speaks to the opportunity. So how do we go about unlocking that opportunity? So the, the first part and perhaps the hardest part was simply getting the inventory online. You know, mm -hmm. Believe it or not, um, just getting galleries and auction houses to list their work online um, was a very hard thing. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why art is actually the last major consumer category uh, to come online uh, in, a, in a really major way. Um, there's sort of a cultural um, resistance where in a more traditional world, people felt that, hey, if there's more people who have easy access to art, does that somehow undermine its value? And I think now that's really that perspective has largely changed, and people realize that having it be more transparent, more accessible, is ultimately a great thing for the artists in their market because there's more people who are aware of it. But I would say that was the first thing Artsy had to do that no one had ever done before at such scale. No one had ever aggregated all the major galleries and art fairs and auction houses and museums all into one place. Okay, that's great, but then if you come to Artsy and you see works and they don't have a price, that's still very intimidating as a buyer. Like, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. So the next step is getting galleries actually comfortable listing. You know, initially, most galleries that went on Artsy listed their works as just not for sale. <laughs> it, it didn't, let alone a price. It mm -hmm. just said, hey, this is actually not for sale. And then over time, we started to convince more galleries to say it's for sale. And then we got them to uh, add a price range and then a price. And every time a gallery did that, we showed them the data that, hey, when you do this, you make more sales. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very, it's a very slow process. You know, it's almost like think about how Craigslist has kind of evolved into Airbnb. Yep. And Airbnb has just added more and more things that make it easy, that make it efficient. Um, and more and more of the market has moved on that platform. And so that's what we're doing with, with galleries and auction houses now. We're just making it really easy to discover, but also really easy to buy. You can imagine soon, not only are people going to see prices, but soon they're just going to be able to buy anything they see uh, with a credit card. That's currently possible for our auction houses. If you want to bid in like a, in a Phillips or a Christie's auction on Artsy, you can do it with your credit card. But on most galleries, uh, you still have to talk and message the gallery first before buy. But imagine if 90% of what you saw, you could actually purchase immediately with a credit card. And then imagine eventually, you know, shipping was easily handled. Imagine insurance was easily handled. Mm -hmm. Imagine returns. Imagine financing. All the things that you can expect. Um, in e-commerce in general, they will eventually move into our industry. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. 
So your own business model is to take a commission, right, on, on sales that you've made. Is that right? Um, uh, we make money in two primary ways. Um, one is galleries pay us a subscription to be uh, on Artsy. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is kind of like paying for your rent in cyberspace. Yep. Um, same way you'd set up a gallery in Chelsea, you have your Artsy store, uh, you have your gallery storefront on Artsy. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then for our auction house partners, uh, we get paid a commission uh, when we drive them a sale. Okay, that's just on the auction house, not not on galleries. That's correct. Okay. Because uh, I was just wondering, kind of, you said, you know, there's like 30 to 40 percent margin somewhere, right? Or the difference between, uh, uh, you know, what, uh, what you sell it for and what you actually eventually receive. Uh, and so I was wondering kind of how, how the economics works if you were also in the middle there. Because, um, again, I can imagine, as you said early on, you know, galleries would probably consider you more as a competitor rather than as a nice storefront, right? Yeah, and I think that's actually one thing that's really differentiated our strategy. There's a there's a lot of people that have gone online and they've tried to compete directly with galleries mm -hmm. by being essentially their own online gallery or directly right. with auction houses by being their own auction house. And our strategy has actually always been premised on the notion of partnership mm -hmm. versus disruption. Yeah. And the and the reason why is 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 really strategic. I think that if you are If you want to build a, a taxi, a ride-hailing company like Lyft or Uber, then I think it's pretty obvious that people want a vertical experience. Because if I'm hailing a taxi in New York City, you know, as long as you can get me some taxis in New York, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. However, if I'm an art collector in New York City, let's say I'm a, I'm a David I'm a David Hockney art collector. If you only show me the David Hockneys in New York, that's not good enough because they're unique. Mm -hmm. I want access to I want to see the David Hockneys that are in Chicago and that are in Sao Paulo and that are in uh Shanghai. Um and so Artsy's strategy has always said if you try to compete with industry, you're only ever going to have a very small fraction of the market that you can offer up to your buyers and they're not going to be satisfied because for unique works, people want access to the full inventory. Mm -hmm. Um and actually and this is actually being shown now in our data. Our average transaction distance on Artsy between a buyer and seller is 3,000 miles, wow. uh, which to my knowledge is actually the highest transaction distance of any site on the internet. Yeah. Uh, and so that really kind of underscores the importance of being a partner as opposed to disruptor. To get the consumer all the art that they could want, you have to partner with industry and bring and essentially aggregate everything onto onto one platform. Um, and so I think that is you know, really how we play things uh, very differently, not just from other people in our space, but I would say you know, more generally in tech. You probably hear more stories about Uh, disruption than you do with partnership. But I think if you're in an industry that has very specialized uh, sales expertise and that has unique objects, partnership is the way to go. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the geographic footprint, both of the sellers and the buyers? Because if it's 3,000 miles, uh, either it's West Coast, East Coast, or it's a lot of China. <laughs> it's Well, it's, it's very uh, intercontinental. And, and honestly, yeah. that stat actually, that, that surprised even us. Uh, internally, just because, you know, the way the art market used to exist was really you would buy things in your own city because you would go yeah, walk in right. a gallery and, you know, you'd see a work and you would buy it. And uh, I think even we, we always knew, you know, we always knew that it was inevitable that in the same way, you know, luxury fashion used to be purely something that happened offline and people said it would never go online. You know, it, it's just sort of inevitable, right, that it's shifting online because of the convenience and the time savings. You know, as a collector, um, You know, how do you how do you keep track of your favorite artists, right, without a service like this? Right. Um, so that does present a challenge to the business, though, because if you if you want to launch a marketplace, it's far more efficient to just pick one city. 
and mm-hmm. focus on that one city. So Artsy actually took a lot of time and a lot of capital um, before it launched, because if you want to position yourself as the pre- premier online art platform, uh, you can't launch with a few cities. In fact, you can't even launch with one continent. Mm-hmm. You truly have to reflect the art market itself, which is very global. So when we launched, we actually had 70% of our partners outside the U.S. Wow. Uh, and if you actually look at a, at a, at a map, this map of our transactions, I mean, it basically looks like, like, uh, like, uh, flight patterns. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's basically going between a lot of the major cities. You know, so you might see like a buyer in Dubai, uh, you know, st- you know, buying a work from Chicago or right. someone from, you know, Shanghai into Sao Paulo. Wow. Just amazing. Uh, I mean, and, and it's, and it's yeah. really shocking. I mean, we just had a new record. We sold a $2 million work, um, out of the, the TFAF art fair. Uh, from a collector who didn't go to the fair, you know, wow. who didn't see the work in person. They just saw it on Artsy and they inquired about it. Right. Well, so wonderful. I mean, unfortunately, that's all that we have time for today. Uh, Carter, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. That was amazingly interesting. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.